So many decades ago, probably when dinosaurs roamed the earth, as a seminarian, I went to St. Meinrad Seminary, and I lived next door to an arch abbey, a community of Benedictine monks. There are many advantages to living next door to monks. They're quiet, no large, large parties to con- and loud parties to contend with, though their bells are very loud. There's lots of praying and beautiful chant going on, and certainly there are many things to learn about the Christian life and about God and about who we are. For example, every afternoon at 3 p.m., bells ring, indicating a period of silence called Lexio Divina, a slow, contemplative praying of Scripture which enables the Bible to become a means of union with God. During Lexio Divina, monks still themselves and listen, something that we don't do very often, and even use their imaginations to place themselves in a biblical scene. For me, it also became an occasion to judge my spiritual progress about how I would respond to the events that are placed before Jesus, that are scripturally chronicled about him. In other words, would I forgive as Jesus did? Would I love as Jesus did? Would I speak the truth no matter the cost as Jesus did? Would I inspire others to journey toward the kingdom as Jesus did? Sometimes I can stretch myself to be just like Jesus, which is a great reminder at that three o'clock hour. At other times, I have an array of emotions such as sadness and even anger when I ponder and pray about what Jesus had to deal with and how he was treated and misunderstood and judged during his ministry. For example, I'm quite sure that if I was plopped down into the scene in today's gospel, I would have exploded in anger because they didn't come, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, to get enlightenment. They came to trap Jesus, a no-win situation that could have ended up badly had Jesus lost his cool. The scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus seemingly for guidance, but they really aren't asking for guidance about the law. They put a lot of time and energy into a trick question designed to discredit Jesus no matter how he answers. For if Jesus, for if Jesus authorizes the stoning of the woman caught in adultery, the Pharisees will immediately report him to the Romans. And under Roman rule, Jews were not allowed to administer capital punishment which would have resulted in Jesus' death. On the other hand, if he opposes the stoning, then the Pharisees will condemn him as a false messiah who contradicted the teachings of Moses. For the Torah classified adultery as a capital crime that led to the deaths, plural sense, deaths by stoning of both parties caught in adultery. Incidentally, no word on where Mr. Adultery is in this story. Further evidence that the woman is being used as a pawn. Again, it's a lose situation no matter what for Jesus. And finally, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to trap him, ridding themselves of this insurrectionist once and for all. Ultimately, the woman was caught in adultery, a serious sin, as it still is today, that rips apart marriages and families. And it's a sin that is the result of a misguided search 
for love for which she clearly needs to repent. But she's not the only sinner in this story. The scribes and the Pharisees are clearly sinners too. A lesser known sin called presumption. That has disastrous consequences on the moral life. That is, they presume that they, ha- they are holders of what is true. They presume that it's acceptable to use this woman for their devious purposes, even to the point of death. They presume that they're holier than the little people. They presume that God will approve their use of the law to condemn Jesus. And in short, and most especially, they presume God's favor and his forgiveness. God's always going to understand us. Let he who was out sin cast the first stone. What a response. Pope John Paul II said that when Jesus pauses and traces on the ground, it is out of mercy that he was giving his accusers time to think, to discern, maybe even repent from what they were doing. Jesus knows, incidentally, that the woman is safe. He knows that when they think it through, they're not going to throw any stones. Although in their presumption they considered themselves sinless, they're not about to break the law, making themselves vulnerable to Roman authority and reprisal, as again, capital punishment was forbidden to the Jews. So their decision to slink away one by one isn't exactly a public confession of guilt, but Jesus' invitation to pick up stones and throw them and their refusal to do so causes them to fall into their own trap, making them look like sinners who compromise the law. After a while, only Jesus remains with the woman. St. Augustine describes this scene as misery meeting mercy. And Jesus' response to the sin of the adulterous woman is one that we should pray over as Christian people during the Lenten season. Like the Pharisees and the adulterous woman, we're all sinners in need of mercy. During our own time, sins against purity, for example, are some of the biggest challenges that we face. But as we come together during this Eucharist, Jesus longs to make us worthy of God through his love and mercy. St. Bede says that when Jesus bends down and traces on the ground, it also demonstrates his humility. And when he finally stands up, he says, I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. This isn't an ultimatum, but an invitation to the woman caught in adultery. She is inviting this woman to free herself from her sinful past and to enter into an authentic, chaste, loving relationship with him. We really don't know how this woman responded to that invitation. We hope that she started a new life in Christ, but ironically, will reverse the self-destructive nature of her former adulterous life. Once again, our Lenten gospel this weekend calls us to first and foremost purge ourselves of sin. And Jesus also encourages us to ponder how we deal with the sinful world around us, with judgment or with mercy. So what about the call to purity? Do we accept pornography, infidelity, acts of impurity because, well, everybody else is doing it. Surely God will forgive us. 
Do we challenge those around us who are lost in impurity? Do we realize the destructiveness of impurity to ourselves and to others? Do we presume God's love and forgiveness as did the scribes and the Pharisees? Do we always presume that our sinful circumstances are somewhat unique and acceptable when God calls us to live in his truth? Have we become our own small g God, sinning against the first commandment, convincing ourselves that we are the arbiters of right and wrong, depending on our circumstances and situations when Jesus came to testify to the truth? Are we obedient to God, which is so important to our spiritual progress in life? Christians must judge behaviors so that we can repent or draw others to repentance, but do we take it one step further to judge people, as did the scribes and the Pharisees? Do we condemn those who have lost their way, or do we follow the example of Jesus, encouraging and loving them into fidelity to God? Let us ponder these options that are before us. Are we self-righteous, arrogant, condemning, like the Pharisees, or do we humbly love the Lord and lead the lost to him? The world needs the latter through each and every one of us.